Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to, um, to preach your word. Thank you so much for, for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And the very words in this book have the power to cut between soul and spirit. Thank you for the power of the word. My prayer is that you would hide me behind the shadow of your cross. And that none of these words come from Vanessa, but that they would come straight from you, Jesus. And that when we leave here today, that we would be a little bit more like you. That we would put a smile on your face today. In your name we pray. Amen. So before we get into scripture, I'd like to, I'd like to tell you a little story. Settle down, kids. Settle in. Once upon a time, there was a girl in her 20s named Vanessa. And... One lovely fall day, Vanessa decided that she would go and get pumpkins because, well, it's fall and Vanessa was doing her basic girl thing. And so she stopped at Starbucks and got a pumpkin spice latte. She put on her favorite plaid scarf. And then she went to a pumpkin patch where she bought two of the most beautiful pumpkins that you ever did see. They shined in the sun in all of their orange glory. And Vanessa was very, very excited because these prized pumpkins would soon be artfully carved and placed upon her front porch for the whole world to see. So she put the two pumpkins after she purchased them into the back seat of her car. She excitedly drove home to her new husband. But somewhere in that 15-minute drive, Vanessa became a little lackluster in her excitement about these pumpkins because when she got home, she did not get them out of the car. That day, or the next day, or the next day. And so it's not like she forgot about the pumpkins. Vanessa knew that the pumpkins were there. It's just that when thinking about the effort, that she would have to put into just getting the pumpkins out of the car and putting them into her kitchen. On a scale of one to even, she just couldn't. <clears throat> and so they sat, and they sat for weeks and for months. Now, here's a science lesson for you, kids. <laughs> when two pumpkins sit in the back of your car, from October to January. This is church, no judgment. <laughs> Something pretty amazing happens because the coldness of the air will preserve these pumpkins so that they look like there's nothing, they look beautiful, they look strong, they look orange, they look like good pumpkins. But then one day, Vanessa's car needed to be fixed. So Vanessa took her car to the local shop where it sat in a heated garage for three days. Do you know what happens to a months-old pumpkin when it sits in the back of a car in a heated garage for three days? Another science lesson for you, kids. It implodes. And it flattens into pumpkin soup, rotten pumpkin soup. And the smell, oh sweet mercy, the smell. <laughs> it's the smell that goes to your car floors and just never ever goes away completely. And so you see, on that day, Vanessa learned a very valuable lesson. Besides the fact that you should just stop being 
lazy, but that's a different story. The lesson that she learned is that sometimes things that look good on the outside for what seems like a very long time can actually be pretty rotten on the inside. And in the heat of life, that rottenness will rear its ugly head. And so that leads us to this chapter of Nehemiah. And if you've read ahead, you will understand that the book of Nehemiah ends with a lot more questions than it ever does answers. And so we're going to dig into chapter 13 here in a minute, but I just want to touch on chapter 12 because we're not really going to go into it very much. So up until this point, we've seen the wall finally built. It's a huge cause for celebration. The people of Jerusalem have turned their hearts back to God. They've recommitted themselves to God's plan and to his covenant. And in chapter 12, at the end of that chapter, we see this big, beautiful celebration together. It is the party of all parties It's celebrating God's faithfulness through the whole process, his grace, his protection, his calling. It was the biggest party ever. It was bigger than Times Square on New Year's Eve. It said that the people were so full of joy that you could hear the party from miles and miles away. There was singing, there was praise, there was a purifying of God's people, there was dancing and the, the word says that God gave the people a reason for great joy. And so this was their opportunity to, uh, to give that joy to Jesus, to, to, to give it back to him. And so think about that moment, if it applies to you, think of that moment when you personally kind of stepped over that line of faith and said yes to Jesus. And if it was anything like my experience, I got saved when I was 14, and I had no idea what I was doing. My friend just said, hey, you want to you go get saved? And I'm like, okay. And so, like, I had no idea what it meant. All I knew was that in that moment, I just wanted Jesus to be a part of my life. And that's, honestly, that's all you have to know. Because after that, like, it was just like this big, ginormous heart party. I don't know what was going on in me, but I, I went from there, and then I went to school, and, like, everything, I immediately got baptized I started this Bible group in school when I didn't even really know very much about the Bible. Um, I, I tried to tell as many people as possible about Jesus, and it was just a really great, beautiful time. I couldn't get enough of the Bible, couldn't get enough of worship and the church and prayer. And so that's kind of where the people were in Nehemiah 12. It was just a big celebration of people being... Um, just getting back with with God and being in the right place that they were supposed to be in. And so if this is how the book of Nehemiah ended, sign me up for that Hulu original because Vanessa loves a happy ending, okay? But then comes chapter 13, and it's like this major, huge, wah, 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 let down kind of thing. So somewhere between 12 and 13, Nehemiah has done his job in Jerusalem Somewhere between 12 and 13, he goes back to Persia to work with King Artaxerxes. And so he goes there. He had, this is what's crazy. King Artaxerxes said, you can go on this short sabbatical to go do your Jerusalem thing. This sabbatical lasted 12 years. Vanessa didn't even get three full weeks when she had a baby. But that's the ministry, and if you've ever been a part of the ministry... So 12 years goes by. He goes back to work for the king. About a year into it, he says, I want, he asks the king if he can 
go back to Jerusalem and just see how things are going. How are my friends since the wall has been built? How are my friends since the covenant has been restored? I just want to see how everything's doing. And he was very surprised when he got back to Jerusalem, and it was not in a good way. So I'm going to read Nehemiah 13, and, uh, and then we'll get started. So uh, on that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God, for they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Before this had happened, Eliashab the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also the relative of Tobiah, remember Tobiah is like the really, really bad guy in this story, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grains, offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem at the time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashab's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified, and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, so they and the singers who were to conduct worship services had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. I assigned supervisors for the storerooms, all of those people. These men had an excellent reputation, and it was their job to make honest distributions to their fellow Levites. Remember this good deed, O oh my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. <clears throat> in those days I saw the men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath for the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? Now you are bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. <laughs> Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Remember this good deed also, O oh my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
Furthermore, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not even speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down, called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Ever been that mad before? <laughs> Don't answer that. <clears throat> I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon out of, of Israel into sin? I demanded, there was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of uh, Joada, son of Eliashab, the high priest had married a daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat is also the other person who made life miserable during the building of the wall. So I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his work. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. Remember this in my favor. Oh my God. If there is one thing that I hate, it is a weird ending to a movie. And it's not like I even need a happy ending. I need a conclusion. Give me a conclusion. Especially last year, I felt like every single movie I watched left me either punching a pillow or walking outside to get a breather because evidently, evidently, good, conclusive endings are not in right now and Vanessa can't deal. So I looked up a list of the worst movies and four M. Night Shyamalan movies were on the list of 16. If you've ever seen any M. Night Shyamalan movies, you understand why. <laughs> So it would definitely be God's sense of humor that he would have me do Nehemiah 13 that ends with Nehemiah making sure there was enough wood and timely harvest supply. And that is it. But we will touch on that later. So when I first read this chapter, my first thought was, and even if you, whether you consider this to be a holy thought or not, my first thought was that Nehemiah was acting the exact same way as my five-year-old acts when he sees his three-year-old little brother doing something wrong. Mom, Ollie's touching the TV. Mom, Ollie is pulling the cat's tail. Mom, Ollie is pouring olive oil in the bathtub. All of those things have happened. Alistair will do literally anything to catch Ollie in the act of doing something wrong. It's, I don't know what it is, it's kind of that big brother bossy syndrome. And so when I saw that Nehemiah was kind of on like this tattle rampage, it kind of made me laugh. It kind of made me think like, dude, what's your deal? Lighten up a little bit, okay? You're acting kind of crazy, you're very uptight. But Nehemiah is ticked off and he is ticked off for some very, very good reasons. It all boils down to Nehemiah's efforts to, with God's help, to restore Jerusalem back to the way that it was originally supposed to be. And after all of that 12 hard years of work, he finally got to a place where he could leave Jerusalem and say, ah, oh, they're in a good place. They're back where they should be. And then within a year, how far they had gotten away from the will of God. 
First, Nehemiah saw that Tobiah was staying in one of the storerooms in the temple, and not only was it specifically stated that no Ammonite, which Tobiah was, should ever come on the premises of that temple, Tobiah was like the arch nemesis of Jerusalem because of the hard time that he gave everybody when they were building that wall. He, he was fighting tooth and nail to try to get that wall to stay down. And so here is Tobiah now setting up an apartment with his Xbox and his beanbag chair in a place that is holy and is supposed to be completely pure in God's eyes, and he's just setting up residence there. And so Nehemiah knew that this was wrong because even him being on the premises gave Tobiah a little bit of power, and that didn't sit well with Nehemiah, and so he knew that he had to do something about that. This was blatant disobedience from God's people who just a year earlier had made a promise to God's covenant, and Nehemiah needed to deal with it. So he went into the temple, and he threw everything out, into the streets. He called in the fumigators and Molly made, and they came and disinfected every square inch of the room so that there was not even a trace of his cologne left in the room because it needed to be pure in God's sight. And so the people then, he saw, could not spend time in worship because the worshipers were out in the field. And let me tell you, if you came to church and there was no worship, I can't play that violin, you guys. And you don't want me to. Like, that's Josiah's thing, you know? And Josiah has a place, and he should not be working in the field. He should be on that violin leading worship. And so Nehemiah understood how important worship was and how devastating it can be to your relationship with God to not have that ability to worship. And so one of the first things that he did was he rebuked the leaders for allowing that to happen, and he brought the worshipers back to the rightful place in leading worship. Then he saw the people of Judah. They were working on the Sabbath. They were breaking one of the Ten Commandments. They were reverting back to a life of bondage that God had been trying for hundreds of years to get them out of. So once again, he rebuked the leaders for allowing this to happen. He threw all the vendors out who were working in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, even the ones who were just waiting on the outside of the wall, waiting for the next day to come. It's not Black Friday, guys. Get out of here. And finally, Nehemiah saw that some of the men of God were marrying foreign women. And God had insisted that this could not happen. And it has nothing to do with the women being foreign. God created our entire earth with these beautiful cultures and these beautiful backgrounds. But the issue back then was if you were from a different culture, if you were foreign, it also meant that you had a foreign religion. And God knew his people well enough to know that we are weak in heart. And so whenever we would link ourselves with a foreign religion and a foreign person, that we would get pulled away from the will of God, that, that relationship that we had with God. And so um, we read, you know, that, that Nehemiah got a little bit angry with all of this, and you could tell mostly by the hair pulling and the, and the beating and the cursing, and he made them promise to never intermarry again. So we read how Nehemiah goes on this tangent of anger, and what we have to realize is that this is not just out of nowhere. This is not... Nehemiah being on his high horse, he's not perfect, he's not really anything special. But the reason why he gets so angry is because it was almost like his generational life was flashing before his eyes. And what he was seeing was the same pattern that the Israelites had always had, doing the same mistakes over and over and over again. And the reason why he was so angry 
is because he saw God's people pull close to God and then almost in the same breath turn around and do the complete opposite of what they said that they would do. And every time that they did that, every time that they disobeyed God right after they had obeyed, it was like they got sucked more and more into the bondage that they had always been stuck into. And so the reason why Nehemiah was so mad about this is because part of the reason why he was a slave to King Artaxerxes is because of the same mistakes that his forefathers had made. And so he didn't want to keep watching these people keep making these mistakes and keep doing these these things. And so he felt compelled to do something about it. But friends, we are those people. We are them. We are those people who don't learn from history and we don't learn from our mistakes. We're the people who keep making those same mistakes over and over and over again. Nothing has changed. Moses saw the Israelites do this same exact thing when he went up on the mountain and he was carving the Ten Commandments into the stone and he was only gone for 40 days. And by the time he had made it back down the, the mountain, he had seen that God's people were already bored and already worshiping a golden cow that they had made. It only took 40 days. What are you people doing? Jesus experienced this disappointment when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And the reason he went there is because he needed to have a desperate conversation with his father. And so he told three of his disciples, sit by this tree, guard a little bit, and I'm just going to be gone for a short while. Meanwhile, Jesus goes to the garden and he is sweating blood because of the intensity of his prayer saying, God, if there is any way that you can make this cup pass for me, this cup of suffering, if you can do anything to make it possible so that I do not have to go to the cross, please make it so. And he was only gone for an hour and he comes back and his three disciples are sleeping. Jesus saw the same thing happen with Peter when he had a conversation about, about Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well, some people say that you're a prophet. Some people say you're just a really good teacher. And Jesus says, no, listen, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And then we have this amazing moment in the Bible, like this like pinnacle moment in the Bible where Peter says, you're the Christ. And you can see Jesus' chest puff up with pride because finally, finally somebody is understanding who I really am. Somebody is really understanding the place that I have in their lives. It's this huge revelation. Peter, I'm going to build the church on this revelation that you just had. Whoa! And then just a couple days later, Peter is telling people that he doesn't know Jesus, cursing at people, saying, I didn't know him. It's the same disappointment over and over and over again. We keep reverting back. We're them. We're the ones who profess our love to Jesus on Sunday, and then Monday somehow we just forget because it gets busy, and you got to get kids on the school bus, and you got to pack lunches, and you got to get to work, and you have to make that deadline, and you just forget. We're the ones who get baptized in September, and then in January we're finding that we're pushing the snooze button 12 times, basically impossible to get out of bed to go to church once or twice a month. We're the people who, at one point in our lives, couldn't get enough of the word and couldn't get enough of church and community and all of that. And then months down the road, it's like you can't remember the, where did you leave your Bible the last time. And I'm preaching to myself. My goodness, it never gets any easier. What happens? What happens to us? 
Passiveness happens. Coasting happens. Leaning on our own strength happens. And this happens to more areas in our life than just our walk with God. It happens in our marriages. You know, at one point, you're, you're doing everything that you can to be romantic and to make them feel very special. But all of a sudden, you just you stop rom- being romantic and you stop trying to add that element of surprise and, um, to your relationship. And all of a sudden, you stop talking less and you start watching the TV a little bit more. And before you know it, you can't remember the last time that you held hands or the last time that you went on a date or the last time that you had a meaningful conversation. It happens with your kids where, where you know, when they're young, you're, you're completely intentional and devoted to um, training them up in the right way that they should go so that when they grow old, they'll never depart from it. And, and you're praying with them and you're reading God's word to them and you're encouraging them into, in the Lord. And then all of a sudden, they get into like elementary school and then there's sports and there's extracurricular activities and then there's work and there's friends and there's, and then all of a sudden your kids are teenagers and you're thinking, where is that God connection that I used to have with you? It happens in your workplace when you, when you get that new job and you're so excited because this is a new opportunity for you and you can't sleep at night because you have so many good ideas about how to make things better. And then all of a sudden, you cannot wake up in the morning because you hate your job and you're just going there to punch a time clock and get in and get out while talking to the least amount of pop- people as possible. And you're miserable. And of course, we do this in our walks with God. And I think what God is trying to say is that there's there's no such thing as a passive Christian. To be more specific, there is no such thing as a successful passive Christian. In my opinion, every decision that you make in your daily life is either going to bring you one step closer or one step farther away from Christ. There's no in-between. And I think there are many times in our lives when we are like that pumpkin of my car, where it looks okay on the outside, but on the inside, we're wasting away. And we might not even realize it until the pressure and the heat of life causes those things to come out causes that ugliness and that emptiness and that decay to make itself very visible. We can't be passive. We can't be complacent. I cannot hope that my three years in ministry school is going to sustain me in my walk with God. I cannot hope that the miracles that I have seen in my past, I can't hope that that is what is going to sustain my relationship with God in the future. The miracles of yesterday cannot sustain me today. And they certainly didn't with the Israelites. When they were in the desert, they had fresh manna from heaven every single day. But if they thought that they could take that manna from here to tomorrow, they were wrong. It would be rotten. It would be full of maggots. Why? Because they needed to need God. We need to need him. We need to depend on him. We need him to supply everything for us. But the moment that we think that we're okay... And the moment we think that we can coast, that's when things get a little bit dangerous because the problem is, so we don't see it happening. We don't see the decay happening until it's too late and we wonder and we look back and we say, where 
did I go wrong? Where did all of that, where did it go? So how do we stop this from happening? How do we fight that decay? How do we get stronger in our relationship with him, more firmly rooted in our identities? We have to fight. We have to fight. Walking with Jesus is not always passing by peaceful streams. And I'm sure that all of you can understand that with some of the things that you've had to deal with in your life. It is not always peaceful streams. Sometimes, following Jesus means flipping tables in the name of justice. Sometimes it means cracking the whip in the face of things that are wrong and the things that do not belong in your life, because that's the way that Jesus was. Jesus was not a peaceful stream all the time. Sometimes it means being like Nehemiah and pulling the hair of the devil and cursing him when he is taking something that is not his. Matthew eleven twelve says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? It means the world is a violent place. You know, I know that we've seen probably in the past six weeks, two months, what the, how, just how violent the world can be. We see what AK-47s can do. We see what natural disasters can do. We've seen what hate can do. But the Bible says that we do not fight against those things. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against powers and principalities. The world is a violent place. And if we don't recognize that, if we do not learn how to fight and to be strategic in our walks with God, then before we know it, the world pulls us right back into it. We must be violent. And I, I read something interesting um, when I was studying for this. And it, it's talking about the churches. I read that if the devil cannot destroy a church, he will join it. And one of the things that I've seen in, the, in my years of ministry is that churches do not, churches do not split and churches do not die because of something catastrophic. Churches die because of those little foxes that spoil the vine. In gossip, in dissension, in division, in hatred, in bigotry, in bias, in prejudice, those are the little foxes that spoil the vine. So if the devil can't do something catastrophic like strike this church with a lightning bolt and just burn it to the ground, what he's going to do is he will join the church and he will cause the church to die from the inside out just like a pumpkin, evidently. And so it causes us to be strong and to be violent right back. Now, I do know some people in here who might say, oh, I've just never really been a very violent person. I've never been a fighter or anything like that. Well, let me tell you a story, because I used to think I was that kind of a person, although I can be really intense sometimes. One day, I was walking on the road with Ollie in the stroller, tiny baby Ollie, and this motorcycle pulls right up to us and like basically stops and revs his engine as hard as he can in the face of Ollie, freaks us out, scares the living life out of us, and then drives away. No matter how big that man was, if I could have, I would have kicked his bike into the ditch. Now I know that some of us don't have that violent temperament, but what we do have is a protective spirit. Moms, dads, 
men, women, whoever you are, if something of yours is being threatened, something about that mama papa bear kind of comes out of you and it teaches you how to fight. And if there's anything worth fighting for, it is your relationship with God. If there is anything to protect, it is your relationship with God. So we fight. We fight for our marriages. We fight for our children. We fight for our livelihood. We fight, fight for our sobriety, our recovery. We fight for our God who fought for us. He fought for us so hard that he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him. And so the least that we could do is fight for that relationship that he gave us with him. Every moment of every single day, we fight in prayer. We fight by studying the word. We fight by staying locked into the church and relationship and not doing what Vanessa loves to do and pulling away and becoming an island and being alone. You fight that. We fight by not allowing the good of this world to replace the great. And one reason why I think it's a good thing that Nehemiah didn't end more conclusively and the reason I'm a little bit okay with how it ended, even though that's the kind of ending that I just don't understand and it doesn't make sense to me, is because the story's not over. There's no conclusion because the story's not over. And if you're one of the people in here who says, dang it, I am one of those people who just dropped the ball. I am one of the people who has become passive or complacent or who's just stopped fighting or become... Yeah, and here, here's the thing. There's going to be seasons in your life where you are on top of the mountain and you are like victorious for Jesus. And then there's other times in your life where you just want to take a nap. And I get that. I totally understand that. But it's a one foot in front of the other. And as long as you can do that, you're going in the right direction. So if you are one of the people in here who says, I need to pull myself up by the bootstraps and really attack life the way that I need to attack life, the story's not over. The story's not over. You are in a Nehemiah 13 right now, and, and I can't promise you tomorrow, but I can promise you right now, and the decision that you make right now is going to affect the rest of your life. So fight. Make that decision to fight for what you know God has for you and has had for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, you are our victor. You are the example that we can follow in that you were violent, but you were violent in your love for your people. You didn't just flip tables just because it was the thing to do. You flipped tables because of injustice and the things that are not right in this world. May we be people of conviction. May we be people who never back down in the face of adversity or complacency or passiveness or boredom. May we, every single day, walk one step closer to you and not allow the enemy to talk us out of being strong and doing things in the most excellent of ways. Give us the strength that we need 
every single day, that measure every single day to live for you exactly the way that you would have us and to see victory after victory after victory happen in our lives simply because you just lead us in the right direction and we follow. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for being the perfect example. In Jesus' name.